Good morning. We had um, my secretaries packed, always send a box with me, and usually it's a Bible studies. And I looked, and we had a few of these cost of revivals. As I said, we were we had run out, but I guess they had a few left, and figured since they didn't have enough to cover anyway, they they sent what they had. So we found. I opened up what I thought were Bible studies down there. Were actually mostly cost of revival, so we don't have a lot of Bible studies. I see there's one notebook left or two, and uh, somebody wants one. We have some Bible studies in packets. I would like to see as many people that are interested in giving Bible studies as possible get the notebook, because it has a section in there on how to give Bible studies that um, will really help in, in making the Bible studies effective. <clears throat> but if we run out, I think... Uh, we send them over here to uh, uh, for uh, Richard to sell, and he has a supply too, I believe. I don't know if he's out or not. But um, if after the meeting you want to come and pick one of these up, you can get them right now instead of waiting for them to be mailed. And if there's a few extra, you can take uh, one or so for a friend, if, depending on how the supply lasts here. I don't know what there are. There are probably 25 or 30. So take one first, and then after everyone has gotten one that wants one, if there's some left, we'll take take one for a friend or whatever if you want. like to uh, look this morning at something I've entitled the uh, Secret Closure. Now, we've heard of the secret rapture. Now, we know that there is no secret rapture, but there is something secret that's going to happen, at least secret as far as people are concerned. We've had our prayer... But before opening the Holy Word of God, I wonder if you'd just bow your heads with me just a second again as I ask for God's special blessing. Lord, I recognize that I am unwilling to, unable to understand or present your Word this morning without your special grace and your special power. I pray that your Holy Spirit will be here now to anoint my lips and to enlighten our minds, each one of us, as you speak to us through your Word. Help us to understand it. Help our characters to be shaped into your image, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. They were all Seventh-day Adventists waiting for Jesus to come. They were friends working together, believing together, and uh, hoping together. They had call-ported and told people that Jesus was coming They had told them that he was coming soon and that you need to be ready for his second coming. They had all let their lights shine. But somehow the Lord did not come as soon as they had expected. I think this is something that uh, in our churches that I pastor, usually we have uh, probably most of the people have been Adventists for five years or less. We have, uh, we have a goal, a Steps to Life, to start one new church each year. And last two years, we've been able to, each year, start a new church. And we're going to try to start another new one next year. But, um, so most of these people have not been Adventists for long. But those who have been Adventists for a long time know that there was a time when we expected Jesus to come soon. And somehow that time has gone by. We don't expect Jesus so soon anymore. Maybe in theory, but it's not a burning uh, message that we seem to have like we used to. Because there's been a delay, and so there was a delay. And somehow, they all seem to lose some of their energy for witnessing and for sharing about Jesus to come. You see, they became more involved with the world, with the good things, of course, making a living, preparing for retirement, uh, getting the kids in school and going on vacations and raising families and all of these things, marrying and giving in marriage and different things. Now, they were still faithful Adventists, just relaxed Adventists, until all of a sudden, things began to happen in the world to wake them up. I don't know exactly what the things were, I guess there's a hundred different things that could wake people up. One may wake up one person and something else will wake up somebody else. 
But something came along to wake them up. And uh, they decided they better let their light shine once again like it had shone once. And so five of them went forth with their lights burning again brightly. But the others couldn't quite seem to get the message back like they once had it. Their witness had gone out and they couldn't seem to resurrect it again. And so they decided that they had better brush up. They better go to some meetings and do some Bible study and do some praying. And somehow they better get their light shining shining once again. But the Bible says that there was a famine in the land. Look with me over at Amos 8, verses 11 to 12. There was a famine. It says here, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord. The days are coming, says the Lord God, that I will send a famine on the land. Not a famine of bread, nor a thirst for water, but of hearing the words of the Lord. They shall wander from sea to sea and from north to south to east. They shall run to and fro seeking the word of the Lord, but shall not find it. In that day the fair virgins and strong men shall faint from thirst. You see these young maidens, they went to the preachers whom they, in whom they had trusted. The only preachers they knew, obviously, they weren't going to go to some Baptist church or Lutheran church or Methodist church. They weren't going to go to those who weren't recognized by the church. They went to the people whom they had trusted. But their preaching somehow had no power to change their lives. The power had gone. They didn't know where else to go, of course. I read here... uh, a verse that probably goes along with Amos 8. By the way, I believe Amos 8 applies especially in a special sense to the Seventh-day Adventist Church. It's not speaking of the Baptist Church, the Methodist Church. Of course, it applies to them too. But like the Laodicean message, it applies in a special way to the Adventist Church. As we see here in 5T77 that I read yesterday, and this is... Uh, I mentioned yesterday in the message in the afternoon that we are going to go farther into this subject, so we'll read a couple of the same statements. It says, Who knows whether God will not give you up to the deceptions you love? Who knows but that the preachers who are faithful, firm, and true may be the last who shall offer the gospel peace to our unthankful churches? Now we, of course, always want to be kind, and the standard thing is, don't you believe that God has true true people who are in the pastoral forces? Of course, we all believe that. But what we believe doesn't change the facts, whether there are or not. We're not the ones who make that decision, are we? We want to be kind and tolerant and think the best. I read over on 5T, page 80. It says... um, that we have been inclined to think that where there are no faithful ministers, there can be no true Christians, but this is not the case. God has not promised that where the shepherds are not true. God has promised that where the shepherds are not true, He'll take charge of the flock Himself. God has never made the flock wholly dependent upon human instrumentalities. That's an interesting statement. She says where there are no true preachers left. Could there ever come a time when there'd be not a one left? That almost sounds like an unbelievable situation. But um, here we find that it says, Who knows but that the preachers who are faithful, firm, and true may be the last who shall offer the gospel of peace to our unthankful churches. It may be that the destroyers are already training under the hand of Satan. Now, sometimes we think that all these people must be Jesuits. I want to tell you, God can train people, maybe even in our own schools. Just, I mean, Satan can train people, maybe even in our own schools, as well as he can in the, in the Vatican or someplace else. And uh, not saying that there aren't Jesuits. I think Jesuits have been infiltrating Protestant churches 
for probably several hundred years, and I don't imagine that they have kindly decided to exempt us from their endeavors. But uh, nevertheless, <clears throat> it says here that Satan is training. He is training destroyers who only await the departure of a few more standard bearers to take their place. You know, it's interesting, down in Australia, when I go down there to preach, contrary to the way it is here, we have quite a number of preachers who come to the meetings, the concerned brethren and others, as we preach. Everyone is retired. There's not an active preacher who will come. There's lots of preachers who will come, but they're all retired. Everyone is retired. No one is still preaching anymore. We have even conference officers and union division officers that will come, but they're all retired officers. They're all retired leaders. And so it says they only wait the departure of a few more standard bearers to take their places. And with the voice of the false prophet cry, Peace, peace, when the Lord has not spoken peace. When God shall work his strange work on the earth, when holy hands bear the ark no longer, woe will be upon the people. Now I want to tell you what happens is if, in fact Ellen White mentions that if a preacher preaches peaceful sermons, there's someone else comes along and preaches straight sermons, it makes a great, great uh, commotion with the people, you see, because they're used to something else. They have been used to being made to feel that they are, are good when there might be need for revival and reformation. Amen. People have been patted on the back and put into offices and different things when they have no right to be there. Amen. And now when somebody comes along and says, you know, sin is sin and this should not be, kindly, of course, we, don't, we do not want to be uh, on some... Uh, uh, we're not here to preach negative sermons. We're here to help people get ready for Jesus. That's what we're here for. And to recognize that, that we are no better than anybody else. It's not a matter of standing on a platform and saying, I'm righteous and you're wicked. You know, that's the way some people do. That's the way offshoots do. They, uh, they have some special gift and everyone else is sort of wicked. That's not the point. Like Daniel, you know, he says, we have sinned. And so... But even so, when somebody stands up and says, Brother and sister, we need to change our ways. We need to repent. We are getting ready for Jesus to come. And when we start looking at things in detail that we need to change, uh, it makes people sometimes actually angry and upset. And they go to the conference brethren. And, they, uh, and most people aren't willing to go through this trouble. And conference leadership that is trained to try to keep everything running smoothly, they don't want anyone that is stirring up the waters, that is making trouble. And so they ship them off to another church, to a smaller church someplace, or, or eventually they, it's coming to the place where they even, uh, well, uh, let them go from their job. Usually they don't get hired in the first place. And so... Eventually, when we have untrue preachers that get into leadership, in every case, leadership that is a peace and safety leadership is intolerant of preachers or others who are trying to preach a straight message. Amen. That has been the case from the days of Jesus, from the days of Jeremiah, all the way up till today. That has always been the case. <coughs> And so once, once this kind of uh, thing takes hold and becomes predominant, you know, it is interesting, the new theology that came along with Desmond Ford and others, for a long time, they preached that we should all be tolerant, which I agree, until they got an office. And all of a sudden, they said, no one should be a preacher or should be in office except those who believe like we believe. And that's where we've come to now. And so we have here, the day could come, the day could very come, well come, when 
the only people left in positions of, uh, of uh, leadership, and I am not accusing. I personally do not know one person who's a preacher or a leader here in England. So uh, I'm not accusing anyone. I don't know anyone. I don't, I don't know people personally. All I'm saying is by prophecy, according to prophecy, the time could very well come when there isn't a single true preacher left or a single true leader left. Not a one. We don't want to go around saying that's happened. But I want to tell you, even if it should happen, most people would not want to recognize it. But the days could come. The days could be here when these things could be fulfilled. I mean, always in past history, you know, the prophets prophesied of things in the future, and when they came, no one wanted to recognize the fact that they had come. See, the Old Testament prophets prophesied that the Messiah was going to come and be rejected and crucified, but when he really came and was rejected and crucified, no one wanted to believe that that was really a fulfillment of prophecy, right? No, we wouldn't do something like that. We wouldn't reject the true Messiah. Well, prophecy said it would happen. Well, it might happen, but we're not that bad. It might happen some generations down the line. Somehow we never want to accept when the facts come. But I want to tell you, these prophecies we may find are fulfilled just like all the prophecies of the past have been fulfilled. And very likely when they're fulfilled, we'll go on saying, you know, peace and safety, everything's okay. And so there's a famine in the land. When these people wake up, they go to their preachers, but their preachers are preaching peace and safety messages. I read this statement here also, and we won't read the whole two pages, but just to re- review a couple things from yesterday as we're looking at this a little farther today. In 5T, page 209 to 211, it talks about how that those who are sealed will be those who who are concerned about the about the problems that are in the church. By the way, turn with me over to Ezekiel 9 again, just very briefly as we're still somewhat reviewing. Verses 1 to 5. And I want you to notice that it says um, in the first verse that we read yesterday, Then he called out in my hearing with a loud voice, saying, Let everyone who has charge over the city draw near, each with a slaughtering weapon in his hand. And verse 4 says, The Lord said to him, Go through the midst of the city and put a mark on, on um, and through the midst of Jerusalem and put a mark on the foreheads of the men who sigh and cry over all the abominations done within it. You know, there's a whole... There's many people today who accurately see the problems in the church and they see that there is apostasy. And so their solution is to leave the church. Some people call these separationists. I guess that's what they are, separationists. They separate from the church, the church body. And they say, look, the church is making an image to the beast, which I can't deny, it's happening. The church is doing this and that and the next thing, and we have on true preachers and we have all these other things. It's time to separate. I want you to notice here who it is that's sealed, however. Did the angel, was he commissioned to go outside the city? Where did the angel go? Go through the midst of the city. Was it a true and pure city? It was a city that was full of abominations. And so they were to go through the city and they were to set a mark on those who sigh and cry for all the abominations that were done in the midst of it. It didn't say go to those who have left the city and and put a seal on those who sigh and cry for all the things that are done in the city. That did it. Bible says to go through the midst of the city and set a mark on the foreheads of those who sigh and cry because of all of the abominations that are done within that very city that they were a part of. Well, the Bible puts all these interesting things in here in order to keep us from getting deceived and confused and going the wrong direction, doesn't it? But here we have that the city is going to be full of abominations. And those who are sealed are going to be those who are not blind, who don't just go on and close their eyes to everything, not that they're critical, not that they're self-righteous, 
but neither are they ignorant. They see the things and they're concerned about the things. Some people think that ignorance is next to godliness. It's not what the Bible says. And it says the sighing crying ones here on page 210 had been holding forth the words of life. They had reproved, counseled, and entreated. Some who had been dishonoring God repented and humbled their hearts before Him. But the glory of the Lord had departed from Israel. Now, I tell you, these, these are some pretty solemn statements. I used to think that if this is God's church, I guess back in Israel's day, we'd say if this is God's church, we'll never reject the Messiah. Today, I guess we could say if this is God's church, um, and if this church, you know, if the movement is going through and all, what I have always sort of thought growing up is that the church would go into some apostasy, but there'd be a great revival. And the church would be purified, and all the bad people would be shaken out. Then there would be an outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Then the close of probation. And everyone that was still in the church, they would go through. And everyone that got shaken out, they'd be lost. Did anyone else have that kind of a yeah. uh, idea? So just all you have to do, you know, is keep your name on that church book, and you're going to go through somehow. And too bad if you get disfellowshipped or if you leave or something, then you're, you're done for. You're, you know, it's curtains. And, uh, but if you can just keep your name on the book and it never leaves, you're going to go through somehow because the church is going through. So just hang on, stay on the ship, and the ship is going to go into harbor. And the ship, of course, is the organization, obviously. Well, we have here that the glory of the Lord had departed from Israel. And those who just went, were going on with their names in the books, what does it say? Although many still continued the forms of religion. These were the church members, dear friends, and the leaders, and the pastors, and all the rest. They were still continuing the forms of religion. They were still coming to church day after day. They were still holding their evangelistic meetings. They were still had uh, offices and nominating committees and they were still doing all of these things. But God's power and presence were lacking. And it goes on how that they were trying to throw a cloak over the existing evils and these people were the ones who received the wrath of God. However, the others who were sealed would not hold their peace to obtain favor of any, even though they were powerless to stop the rushing torrent of iniquity. Remember we read these things yesterday? Hence they were filled with grief and alarm. They mourned because pride, avarice, and selfishness, deception of almost every kind, were in the church. The Spirit of God, which prompts to reproof, is trampled underfoot while the servants of Satan triumph. God is dishonored and the truth is made of none effect. And then it goes on to say how this class, who feel grieved over their own spiritual declension, do not feel grieved over their own spiritual declension, nor mourn over the sins of others, will be left without the seal of God. And upon them is poured out God's judgments. Here we see the church, the Lord's sanctuary, was the first to feel the stroke of the wrath of God, referring to Ezekiel 9, verses 5 and 6 and onward. The ancient man whom God had given great light and who had stood as guardians of the spiritual interests of the people had betrayed their trust. They had taken the position that we need not look for miracles and mark manifestations of God's powers in former days. Times have changed. These words strengthen their own belief. God will not do good, neither will he do bad. He is too merciful to visit his people in judgment. Thus, peace, peace. Peace and safety is the cry for men who will never again raise their voice like a trumpet and show God's people their transgression, the house of Jacob, their sins. And so these people, they receive the, they receive the plagues of God. They receive God's wrath. Now, so it is that uh, there's a famine in the land. The church activities are still continuing. And uh, people are still preaching, teaching Sabbath school and all of the rest. And uh, so these people, they went, to, uh, they went to find some oil in their lamps, get the witness they had once had and lost. They couldn't seem to find it because there's no power, but I have good news. As they continue to search, as they continue to search for that oil, 
they eventually find it. In the parable, they eventually find some oil and they get their lamps lit again. In the end, all ten virgins had their lamps burning. Do you remember that? Yes, it did. All ten virgins had their lamps burning in the end. Do you remember a little statement in early writings, page 56, and I don't have my early writings here, but it talks about Adventists who went in by faith with their Lord to the most holy place of the sanctuary where where, where the sanctuary was cleansed, symbolizing that their lives were to be cleansed. But there were some Adventists who remained in the holy place. You know, that pre-1888 experience, of, especially of justification by faith. Uh, and they continued to pray to where God's throne used to be. Do you have early writings there? Okay, let's read it here so we have it. This is page 50, uh, 55 and 56. of uh, early writings and it's talking about the end of the 2300 days this one isn't marked so it takes me a second to put my eyes right on where I mean it's not marked like mine is marked it takes me a minute to put my eyes where things are but anyway it um, it talks about how uh, a company went in with Jesus and one stayed behind some stayed behind and they were still religious they were still going on they were right where the people had been for the last you know where Martin Luther had been and all the rest back in the holy place it says I turned to look at the company who were still bowed before the throne this is in the holy place of the sanctuary they did not know that Jesus had left it and gone into the most holy place Satan appeared to be by the throne trying to carry on the work of God. That's interesting, Satan trying to carry on God's work, you see. He's getting in the church, right? He's doing some work here in the church. He's going to carry on a work. I saw them look up to the throne and pray, Father, give us of your spirit. Satan would then breathe upon them an unholy influence In it there was light and much power. Did they get some light? Have you ever heard people talk about getting new light? I never realized, you know, I got some new light. I got a power in my life I never had before. And says Satan gives them light and much power, but no sweet love, joy, and peace. Satan's object was to keep them deceived and to draw back back and deceive God's children. Keep them deceived until it was too late. Do they get some light as they continue to search? There's a famine in the land and they can't find, but eventually as they continue to search and pray, they get that power and that light again and their lamps are lit. There's only one trouble. Somehow, while their lamps were being lit, the door had shut and they didn't even know it. Turn with me over to Matthew 25. I'll tell you, there is so much in these passages. We need to look at everything it says. It's all here, and we need to be aware of these important things that Jesus is saying. It says, While they went to buy, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in with him to the wedding, and the door was what? Shut. The door was shut. I want to ask you, did these people who went to buy know that the door had shut? No, No, they didn't. Afterward, the other virgins came also, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered and said, Assuredly, I say to you, I do not know you. Watch, therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour when the Son of Man is coming. Well, the door had closed while they were getting oil. And they didn't even know it. That's... One of the themes of Matthew 24 and 25. Look with me back at an earlier part of this sermon that Jesus gave over in the chapter before in verse 36. It says, But of that day and hour no one knows, no, not even the angels of heaven, but my Father only. But as the days of Noah were, so also will the days of the coming of the Son of Man be. 
For as in the days before the flood they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day that Noah entered the ark. Now some people think this is talking about the coming of the flood. If you'll read the Bible carefully, it's not talking about the flood. It's talking about when he entered the ark. They, when he entered the ark, they did not know that probation had closed. Until the day that he entered the ark and did not know until the flood came. Now when the flood came, they all knew. But it was too late. But they did not know that the door had shut. That probation had closed until the flood came. I mean, we can think it wasn't secret, but that probation closed was secret because they didn't know that probation had closed. They could see that something had happened. They didn't know it applied to them. They did not know, the Bible says, until a flood came and took them all away. They knew then it was too late. So also will the coming of the Son of Man be. Then two will be in the field. One will be taken and the other left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken the other left. Watch therefore, for you do not know at what hour the Lord is coming. Thus it was with the Jewish nation. While they were carrying on their religious practices, marrying and giving in marriage, eating and drinking, and while they were going on as they had for thousands and thousands of years, while they were paying their tithe, while they were praying, while they were going to church, while they are running the business of the church and keeping the Sabbath, and while they are listening to sermons, and while they are preparing sermons, and while they are preaching sermons, while they are going to church school, while they are sacrificing their lambs, while they are doing all of these things, the Master came, humble and disguised, and found them wanting, and the door was closed, never to be opened again. Let me read a most interesting account of this over in the 1888 messages, page 700. And 64. This actually was an article that Ellen White wrote in the Review and Herald. Uh, Review and Herald, uh, actually, it was a special Review and Herald article. Review and Herald special, December 23, 1890. So if you have the Review and Herald articles, you can find it there. Or if you have the 1888 materials, materials, you can find it here. And she talks about the close of probation for the Jewish nation. It's very interesting. There's a whole two pages. I'll just skim some of it to kind of uh, build up to where it should be. It begins by that the Lord has seen our backsliding and has a controversy with his people. goes on to say what God expects of his people, that they shall love one another as Christ loved us. That's one of the things God expects, isn't it? Many churches do not have light in themselves. The members do not give evidence that they are branches of the true vine by bearing much fruit to the glory of God. But appear to be withered away. Their Redeemer has withdrawn His light. See, there's a famine in the land. The inspiration of His Holy Spirit from their assemblies. For they have ceased to represent the self-denial, the sympathy and compassionate love of the world's Redeemer. They have not love for the souls of whom Christ has died. For whom Christ has died. They have ceased to be true and faithful. It is a sad picture, the feeble piety, the want of consecration, devotion to God. There has been a separation of the soul from God. Many have cut off the communion, communication between him and the soul by refusing his messengers and his message. Incidentally, how does she say that you cut off the soul from God? By refusing his messengers and his message. Isn't that interesting? By the way, this... Oh, I don't have my next volume. If you want to take down this reference, however, it's on page 1056. I just read the other day. I'm... I'm, uh, I keep learning all, more all the time from these. That's about where I am right now. I have uh, one and a half books to, yet to read. I'm anxious to find out what's in, what's in those. But anyway, she says how that... Um, she quote, quotes uh, Revelation 2.2 to the church of Ephesus where it says, um, I'll remove thy candlestick out of its place except thou repent. She says this applies to the Adventist church. And then she says... Um, she says what it means to have our light, for the light to be taken away. It says when there is no longer allowed the voice, of the Holy Spirit's voice of reproof and rebuke within the church, then the candlestick has been removed. 
And the preachers will then walk in the light of their own kindling and the sparks of their own uh, making or whatever. Now, isn't that an interesting statement? Anyway, here we have that, uh, that uh, we are separating the soul from God when God's messengers and messages have been reproved. And it's in our largest churches that the greatest evils exist. I think that still exists today. They have eyes, but they do not see. Ears they have, but they do not hear. They continue in their evil ways, yet regard themselves as a privileged, obedient people who are doers of the word. The sinners in Zion should be afraid in a time when they do not expect it. Sudden destruction will surely come upon all who are at ease. It says the Holy Spirit strives to make apparent the claims of God, but men pay heed only for a moment and turn their minds to other things. Satan catches away the seeds of truth. The precious influence of the Spirit of God is effectually resisted. Thus, many are grieving away the Holy Spirit for the last time, and they do not know it. Could that time ever come to us, or to the church, or to conferences, or whatever? Could we actually grieve away the Holy Spirit and not know it? It can happen. Pride of heart. Then she talks about the Jewish people. She said, The words spoken by Christ of Israel are, Your house is left unto your desolate. What anguish of soul did Jesus feel when all his appeals, his warnings and reproofs were resisted? At the time he brought home them home to the soul, impressions were made, but self-love, self-sufficiency, and love of the world came in and choked out the good seed, so on. Pride of heart prevented his hearers from humbling themselves before God and confessing their sins and resisting his Holy Spirit. And reluctantly, it left them. And it never came back. Never came back. On the crest of all of it, as he beheld the city, he wept over it, saying, If thou hadst known even thou at least in this thy day the things which belong unto thy peace. Here he paused. He was loath to utter the irrevocable sentence. Oh, that Jerusalem would repent. When the fast westering sun, I don't know which way is west here. Is that west? That's west. Wherever it is, that's where it was setting. When the fast westering sun should pass out of sight, her day of mercy, mercy would be ended. You, do you know, by the way, when the proba Jewish probation ended? Now, the gospel continued to be preached until the end of the 70 weeks when Stephen was stoned. Um, Jewish probation actually ended on the actually not even at the crucifixion. It ended on the Sunday before the crucifixion when Jesus said, Your house is left unto your desolate. I never knew that before, did you? I recognized that the last time I read The Desire of Ages through. She makes that clearer then. Somehow it slipped me all the other times. And here she mentions it again. When the fast westering sun should pass out of sight, her day of mercy would be ended. Jesus closed the sentence, but now they are hid from thine eyes. On another occasion he lamented the impenitence of the chosen city. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, which killest the prophets and stonest them that are sent unto thee, how often would I have gathered thy children together as a hen gathers her Root under her wings, and you would not. But behold, your house is left unto you desolate. Now the next sentence is the is the punchline. The Lord forbid that this scene should now be repeated in the experience of God's professed people. Could that scene be repeated today? You know, there is an unbelievable idea that is prevailing today that we can do anything we want to do and God has to take us through because we are His chosen people. Somehow, that reminds me of the attitude of the Jewish people, doesn't it, you? We are God's Jewish people. We are God's special people. He has to take us through. We have all the promises and they cannot be... You know, God can't break his own word. He can't break his promises. We are his people. We can, if we crucify Jesus, he has to be an imposter because we are God's people. 
And if we can get him crucified, he, he cannot be the Messiah because we're his people and we have condemned him. There's that some kind of a, that kind of mentality, you see, that was there with the Jewish people. If we can disfellowship him and crucify him, it proves that he was an imposter because we're God's people and we have to go through. No matter what, we have to go through. I want to tell you the same, the same principles are still in effect today that every tree which does not bear good fruit that God will cut down, Amen. cast into the fire. Says my spirit, he says, shall not always strive with men. The time will come when it must be said of the impenitent, Ephraim is joined to his idols, let him alone. Will the church see where she has fallen? Dear friend, could that time ever come to us? That God said to Ephraim, they are joined to their idols, let them alone. It goes on to say what will happen when this time comes. It says the churches, our institutions, will go from weakness to weakness, from cold formality to deadness, while they are saying, I am rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing. In the manifestation of the power that lightens the earth with the glory of God, they will see only something which in their blindness they think dangerous, something which will arouse their fears, and they'll brace themselves to resist it. Well, the door closes, and they do not know it. Jesus gave a prophecy of the last days, found over here in Matthew 7, verses 21 to 23. It says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but it is he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Many will say to me, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied your name? I used to think this applied to the Baptists and Methodists and Anglicans, you know, the Lutherans and all the rest. Well, it does. But I have come to realize this, too, is an amplification of the Laodicean message. It has a special application to God's people. This goes along with the ten virgins. This says that uh, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, these are the people who think that they are God's chosen people. But not all those who think they're God's chosen people are going through, but it is they who do the will of God. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name? Now in Revelation 10... To prophesy means to teach the prophecies. Lord, have we not held Revelation seminars and Daniel seminars and taught the prophecy? Have we not been a people of prophecy? Have we not even had the gift of prophecy in the church? Have we not cast out demons? Have we not done many wonderful things in your name? And then I'll declare to them, I never knew you. Isn't that what he said to the five foolish virgins? The exact same words? Depart from me, you who practice and what the Greek says, you who did not keep the law. You who say the law can't be kept. You who say that we don't need to keep the law. Depart from me, you workers of iniquity. In a special sense, I believe that applies to the Adventist church. One testimony is page 609, which I don't have here either, but you can mark it down. Ellen White says that she was shown but, that but a small number of those who called themselves Seventh-day Adventists would eventually be saved. A corollary passage on two testimonies, page 445, she says that only a small number of those who claim to be God's special people will eventually be saved, not because they could not be saved, but because they would not be saved in God's own appointed way. They had their own way to heaven. Now, you know, these kind of statements, they should cause us to fear and tremble. If there is actually, according to the prophets, and I don't know why we think that these prophecies won't be fulfilled any more than all the other prophecies of all the ages have been fulfilled. You know, we find all the other prophecies of Jerusalem were fulfilled. We find the prophecies of the Dark Ages were fulfilled. We find the prophecies of the 70 weeks were fulfilled. 70 uh, years captivity, all these prophecies were fulfilled. Why do we think these prophecies don't apply today? The prophet tells us that only a small number of Seventh-day Adventists are going to be saved. Only a small percentage. Which means, dear friends, if 
that we better not just set the norm, the standard as the norm for our lives, doesn't it? There's only going to be a small percentage saved. What's going to happen to the rest? Oh, I know what's going to happen to the rest. Someday they're all going to be shaken out. And then those that are left, they're going to receive the Holy Spirit. And they're going to give the message, wake up the world. And then probation is going to be closed. But you know, these statements don't seem to indicate that. I want to ask you, the foolish virgins that came and knocked on the door, when they knocked on the door, were they still virgins? What does the Bible say? It says they were virgins. What is a virgin in prophecy? They are members of God's true church, right? Had they gone off and married some other husband in the meantime? No. They were still virgins when their door had shut and they were on the outside. According to prophecy, the cleansing does not take place until after the close of probation. When probation closes, there are two classes of church members still within the church and on the church books. There are the foolish and there are the wise. And Jesus just gives a breakdown of the two classes. But in all the rest of Scripture, we find that the great majority are going to be the foolish ones. We find that in Ezekiel 9. We find that in in the spirit of prophecy. We find that in other prophecies. The great majority are going to be with the foolish virgins. Only a small minority are going in. Probation closes when the church is going on and carrying its round of activities while the Holy Spirit has left the institutions. I was interested. I don't... Let's see. Early writings. Oh, we have it here. I think this is on page 71 where she talks about uh, the preparation of the shelter and how many people will not, many Adventists will not wake up until it is too late and the plagues are falling, falling upon them. Can you imagine being Adventist and getting ready to go teach your Sabbath school class on Sabbath morning and turning on the faucet and having blood run out or as that plague comes down, one or two? having the sores poured out upon people, finding the plagues falling upon the earth, and here you're not ready. You're still teaching your Sabbath school class. You're still going to church, and the plagues are falling, and you're not sealed. Oh, we, we have thought, as long as we stay in the church, we're okay. Because all the bad people are going to be shaken out. Well, that's true. But dear friend, they're not shaken out till after it's too late. The angel with a slaughtering weapon goes and slaughters after the seal has been put on the heads of all those who are sealed. Isn't that what the prophecy says? The sealing is put on the foreheads while the abomination is still existing within the city. And after probation closes, the slaughter gets carried on. Haven't we read before how that when the Holy Spirit is poured out, many will be sitting and not knowing that it's happening? Be happening on hearts all around and people not even know that it's happening? Somehow, you know, we have thought, if we just stay on the church books, we're going through. But dear friend, there was never a more fearful delusion. In the first place, maybe we've never really understood what the church is. The book, Upward Look, page 315, Ellen White defines what the church is, as well as in Acts of the Apostles, page 12, and other places. Actually, we have the clear definition throughout the New Testament. Peter gives us the clear definition in 1 Peter 2, verse 9, where he says the church is the people, the laos, a holy nation, a holy people. The word is laos there. The church is the laity, the people. Upward look, page 315. Ellen White says that many people have thought that the church is the denominations and and these different things. And then she says what the church is. She says, where two or three are gathered together in my name, who are keeping the commandments of God and are meeting in my name, the faithful and few, she says, this is God's church. 
for the presence of the High and Holy One who inhabited eternity can alone constitute a church where His presence is. Where His presence is not, there is not a church. Now in the New Testament we find that Jesus is the head of the church. Wherever Jesus is not the head, there is not the church. You see, we can have a thousand people meeting together. And they can be declared a church and organized into a church by a human committee. But if God doesn't recognize them as a church and if His presence isn't in the midst, they're not a church. Another group of people can be meeting and they may never be recognized as a church. But if Jesus' presence is there in the midst, they are God's church. That's the way it was during the Dark Ages with the Waldenses and the others. That's the way it is over in Hungary. That's the way it is everywhere in the world. It's where God's presence is that constitutes the church. Now, when the church is purified is when the books on earth and the committees on earth recognize what God recognizes. That's what makes a pure church, a pure organization, a pure conference, a pure anything else. But our actions don't don't change what, God's, what God does. When we come into line with God, then we're purified. We are God's church is going through purified. His true church. But when the door closes, not all the virgins are inside. Not all those who are members of the church on earth are members of the church in heaven. The end is coming relentless in its fury, but before the end, which will be relentless in its fury, is coming a secret closure of the door. This door is going to close on individuals, on every individual. It's going to close on you and me. We're either going to be on the inside or on the outside. It's going to close on members of the church, on every member of the church. It's going to close on you and me. It's going to close on families. It's going to close on your family and my family. I hope my family's not divided, don't you? Amen. I hope we're not all united on the outside either. I hope we're all united on the inside. Amen. The door is going to close on churches. On every church, the door is going to close. Some entire churches will be found wanting. I hope some entire churches that are on the inside but it's going to close on the churches. It's going to close on the leaders, on the institutions. It's going to close on conferences, on every institution, on every church, on every individual. Everybody today is being weighed in the balances of the sanctuary. Now, if we're all going to be weighed, if, we're all, if we are all at this moment being weighed, and if the door is soon to close with some Adventists on the inside and with a great majority of Adventists on the outside, then how is it that we're to be judged? What is it that God is looking for? Well, I'd like to spend a few moments in closing to look at how it is that God is going to judge and decide who are the foolish virgins and who are the true virgins. That's really the most important point of the message. Well, let's spend a few moments on it here. Turn with me to Revelation 14.1. As we have a picture of the five foolish, five wise virgins who are sealed on the inside. It says, Then I looked, and behold, a lamb standing on Mount Zion, with him a hundred and forty-four wise virgins. hundred and forty-four thousand wise virgins. Having his father's name written in their foreheads. Now, as you know, a name in prophecy represent one, represents one's character. And the forehead represents one's mind, or brain, or character, or soul. And so we find here that God's character is written on their minds. What God is looking for, dear friend, is a change of mind, a change of heart, a change of what's on the inside. That's why most Adventists are going to be lost because they're working on the outside when God is looking on the inside. Amen. We say, it says over in Philippians 2, verse 5, that let this mind be in you which was in also in Christ Jesus. Amen. It's the mind that God is 
looking at, that he wants to be purified. It's the thoughts and the intent of the heart. Look with me over here to Matthew 23. You'll remember that Ellen White applies this whole passage. We just read it. She applies it to the Adventist church where Jesus said, Your house is left unto you desolate. Now, what is the precedent of this? Why, did, why was their house left desolate? Why were they found wanting? We find here in verses 25 and 26 of Matthew 23, it says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! Could Jesus talk plainly? Talk pretty plain. For you paid tithe and mint and anise and cumin, and have neglected the weightier matters of the law. Justice, oh, I'm sorry, this is verse 23, I skipped up. Justice and mercy and faith, these you ought to have done without leaving the others undone. You're, you're all worried about everyone paying their tithe, he says. But he said it's mercy and all these things that you ought to be thinking about. Blind guide to strain at a gnat and swallow a camel. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you cleanse the outside of the cup and dish. But inside they are full of extortion and indulgence. Blind Pharisees first cleanse the inside of the cup and dish, that the outside may be cleansed first. Cleanse also. What God is looking for, dear friends, is what is on the inside. It's our mind, our hearts, our souls that must be converted, our thoughts and the intents of our hearts. When you are in a store, in a strange and faraway place, you know, where there's no one else around that you know, and no one, there's no one else in the store that knows that you're there. What magazines and pictures do you look at then? Where do your eyes fall, you see? Where do they linger? What do they look at when no one else knows? That's the character, dear friends. When no one else is around, that's what decides the character. It's not when some other church member is in the store or when even your wife or husband is in the store or when your children are with you. It's when you're there and no one else is around. That's what counts. You know, Job says in Job 31.1, he says, I made a covenant with my eyes that I would not look on another maiden. Shouldn't we be making covenants with our eyes? Amen. When you're in a department store and no one else is around and the televisions are playing or when you're in a motel or hotel someplace all alone, what do you see on television? When you are driving down the, the motorway and uh, there's cars all around and your windows are up, what is, your, what is on your radio when no one else knows, you see? That's what counts. It's not what you listen to when you have company over, when other people are there. It's when you're driving down in the car and there's no one else in the car and the windows are up and no one can possibly know what you're listening to. That's what really counts. Shouldn't we be making a covenant with our ears? But more importantly than that, dear friends, it's when you're alone with your thoughts. What is it that you think about? What do you meditate upon? Hebrews 8 verse 10 tells us what the new covenant is. This is the covenant that I'll make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I'll put my laws in their mind, and in their hearts I'll write them. It's the heart relationship with God, dear friends, that constitutes the new covenant. It's our hearts that have to be changed. Look with me over here at Philippians 4, verse 8. It says, Finally, brethren, whatever things are true, whatever things are noble, whatever things are just, whatever things are pure, whatever things are lovely, Whatever things are of good report, if there is any virtue, if there is anything praiseworthy, think on these things. Amen. Now, what is, it, what is it that you think about in your idle moments, when you're driving along, or when you're standing and waiting in line? What does your mind 
think about when you first wake up in the morning and when you're going to sleep at night. What is your? What do you think about? And let me get even a little farther since we're going deeper and deeper and deeper. When you finally do fall asleep, what is it that you dream about? Oh, somebody says, I can't control that. Is the truth of God so embedded in your mind that even when you're tempted in your dreams, you resist the temptation? Dear friends, you can. And you need to pray about it. Look what it says over here in 2 Corinthians 10, verses 4 and 5. <clears throat> for the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God, for pulling down strongholds, casting down arguments, and every high thing that exalts itself against God, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of God. Every thought. Can that ever happen? Dear friend, by God's help it can happen, not in our own strength. I have no power to change my mind. I may force myself to think good thoughts for five minutes, but you know I can't keep it there forever. Can you? I certainly can't do anything after I'm asleep, can you? Unless I have a real heart conversion, a real new experience. It takes a miracle in my life for me to change my thoughts and my attitudes and my emotions and my feelings, these kind of things. That takes a miracle. I may be able to put on a good exterior. I may be able to wear clean clothes and say thank you and please and all those kind of things on the outside. But dear friend, what is on the inside, that's what constitutes a Christian. The seal, dear friend, goes in the mind. You can receive the mark of the beast on your hand, but you can't receive receive the seal of God on your hand. The seal of God has to be put in the forehead, in the mind, in the heart, in the character. That's where the seal of God goes. That's what we're told over in Ezekiel 9. Set a mark on the foreheads of the men who sigh and the cry for all the abominations that are done. Dear friends, a sealing happens before the slaughter happens. We don't have anything to do with the slaughtering. God commissions His angels to do that. That's the angels' work for tomorrow. Today's work is the work of the sealing, the work of bringing every thought into captivity to the ways and the things of God. Let's look up just a couple closing texts here. Turn with me to Deuteronomy 6, verses 4 to 9. This should be our experience in our homes, with our children, with ourselves. It says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. And these words which I command you today shall be in your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them as you sit in your house when you walk by the way, when you lie down and when you rise up. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand. They shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on your doorposts of your house and on your gates. When you walk and when you sit, wherever you are, it should be there. What do you think about? That's the point. Is what you think about evil? Or if it is not evil, is it foolish? If it is not foolish, is it vain and vanity? Empty nothingness? What are the thoughts of your heart? God is not looking for just not bad thoughts. He's looking for not even no thoughts. He's looking for good thoughts, is He not? Let us, uh, can we say with the psalmist over here in Psalm 119, verse 97, he thought about this quite a bit. In fact, the 119th Psalm is quite a bit about this. Here he says in verse 97, he says, Oh, how love I your law, it is my meditation all the day. Another place here in this chapter, he says, when I'm uh, awake at night and I can't go to sleep, I think about your law. That's why the conversion is a miracle. We can't change our thoughts. It does take a determined effort on our own part, but those efforts have to be energized by the divine power. But God is willing. He is in the process of sealing. That's God's work. He has promised to seal us. Today... 
It is time to pray with David what he prayed over in Psalm 19, verse 14. He says this, and we need to pray the same thing. He says, Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my strength and my Redeemer. Dear friends, we may fool men. We may even fool ourselves, but God reads the thoughts and intents of the heart. And someday soon, God is going to read those thoughts, every one. And those who have pure and holy thoughts, He is going to seal with His character. And the door will close. May the Lord grant that if the door should close today, we would be on the inside. Amen.